Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to the Believe Knicks podcast. It's episode 40. It's Matthew Miranda joined, as always, by Stacey Patton. Stacey, you look very relaxed in a nice bucolic outdoor environment right now. How are you doing? Yeah, doing pretty well. Got some shade, got a, got a swing, so can't complain. Can't beat that. Um, well, as I said, Stacey, this is episode 40. Um, and I know that for fans, Nick fans of a certain vintage, the number 40 might suggest John Gianelli or one of the great nicknames in Nick history, Marvin, the human eraser, Webster. But I suspect that for you and most of our listeners, when they think of the Knicks and they think of number 40, there's probably another person who comes to mind. Is that so? Kurt Thomas. Kurt Thomas. Kurt Thomas is a really interesting guy because he bridges. He had a long, you know, parenthetical with some other teams, but he was on the late 90s Knicks. He was there through. um, He was there long enough to threaten Stephon Marbury's life. Um, when they had some beef. And then they brought him back in 2013 when they brought back um, Camby and also brought in Rashid Wallace. And the Kurt Thomas-Utah game is still by the hardcores, I think, remembered very fondly that season when the Knicks were really injury-deprived and playing a game, I think, late in the year in Utah. Um, And Kurt Thomas came off the bench and just had, like, the game of his life um, to give them a big win in Utah. Kurt Thomas is, is... Seems to be a pretty beloved Nick, I feel like, in general. Yeah. Um, I mean, there were two different stints. Side note, um, I went to a game with my friend. Who I think I realized as I got older, was, like, pretty wealthy. Um, so we had good seats, and his dad, like, knew people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was, like, I think, I want to say I was nine years old, maybe ten years old. Um, so it was, um, I think it was, I think it was the year before they made the finals. Uh, but I went to this game and like, yeah, his dad just so, like I got autographs from like Chris Rock, Elton Brand, um, who I think was still a senior at Duke at that time, mm. or he was still in his last year at Duke. Um, and I got to meet Kurt Thomas and Kurt Thomas is the first Nick whose autograph I've ever gotten. Oh, nice. That's pretty cool. Um, and, and like also a side note, you mentioned him threatening Stefan Marbury, or I guess a side note to the side note. Uh, I I was gonna say I wonder if you could do like an all Knicks team of people you wouldn't want to fight. Yeah, uh, and then I think they would all be power forwards because like the, <laughs> well, the first names that came to mind, Kurt because we're talking about him, um, Kenyon Martin would probably be the top of the list. Zach Randolph, Rasheed Wallace, uh, I think they're all power forwards. Yeah, hopefully, <laughs> so, too. I probably wouldn't want to fight Ewing. <laughs> like, no. Let's be real, but. Although it's funny you say that, um, because I remember as a kid always trying to, I assumed, you know, Ewing's the biggest, Ewing's probably the strongest, but I remember um, a game when Ewing accidentally, and at pretty much equal velocity, Ewing and Oakley, like, collided with each other, (coughs) and Ewing had to leave the game for a few minutes. Oakley didn't go anywhere. Oakley just stayed out, kept playing. Oakley was fine, so... Ewing's up there, but you're right. I would I would like to consider that question. If you can make an all-time team of people you don't want to fight, I feel like that's where the Knicks would actually be pretty good because you put Willis Reed on that team too, who yeah. fought the entire Lakers. Um, one we haven't day. even mentioned Mace or Oakley yet. Um, and and Willis Reed did, did not come out of the short end against the Lakers. He beat the shit out of the whole team. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, uh, yeah, Xavier McDaniel. You got. I mean, Chris Childs is the only dude who actually tried to fight Kobe. I think. And Jordan, he, he and, gave Kobe a two piece, and he went at Jordan. Um, that's a great. We got to think of that for a future episode. Because even Doc, Doc was some... not one to. I mean, if you if you read Herring's book, there's a great. Uh, Yes. Story about Doc and Kevin Johnson getting into it, and I don't think we, most people who see Doc Rivers, obviously very well spoken guy, uh, very mm-hmm. calm, and um, you know, but he, he was he was part of those Knicks teams. So, yeah. Greg Anthony would would get under a lot of people's skin too, including yeah. Michael Jordan, um, and Kevin Johnson when KJ wasn't looking. Um, trivia for you regarding this number forty: since Kurt Thomas retired at the end of twenty thirteen. Only one Nick has ever worn the number 40 since then. If you know this, I will I will bow down to your superiority. I never would have guessed or remembered this. He's is definitely a, a name dude? you remember, but I would never have gotten this. Is it a white dude? It is. I had a feeling it was. Um is it one of the Ware twins? No. That was Harrelson? No, he was like five something, right? Josh Harrelson? No, Harrelson was, yeah. Is that Jorts? Yeah, it was Jorts. <laughs> I think he was five. Five or... or I think he's like 55 or something like that. Yeah, yeah, some five um, expo- multiple. I can picture, I feel like I can picture this person. They had kind of like light brown hair. You can absolutely picture them. I mean... Was it Bino Udry? No, it's a big man. That sound that makes more sense. Um, Did Bino really have to be a guard, though? Like we have to look into that, as Mike Woodson would say. Can forty be a guard? Yeah. Um, Aldrich probably not. It's in that vein. Oh, Gadzurich? No. Uh, Think think brothers. Think siblings. There's like two white families in the NBA of, of white big men, and this is one of them. Yeah, well, we had one player who was a sibling, but he's also not an obscure name, and he's not white. Um, what are you thinking of? Robin Lopez. I really no, like no, no, not Robin. Think, I was more, actually... think more than two of them made the NBA. Oh. Oh, Plumlee. Marshall Plumlee. <laughs> Marshall Plumlee. As soon as you said, is he white? I was like, he knows it. He knows it. Marshall We've Plumlee. had some white centers, and like, there's one. I, I was thinking of like someone who looked like Brad Miller that has played for us, and wore forty. Um, Lou Robinson seems to me like he would have won forty, but he didn't. Um, I'm gonna save you. The, well, I'm gonna give you. Maybe I'll save that for. There's a, a random trivia that has nothing to do with this number. Um, keep this in your back of your head as we do the show. There is one team this off season in the NBA that has added multiple former Knicks, and has also gotten rid of multiple former Knicks. Do you have any idea who this team is? So there's one team that has... Sorry, can you say that again? They have both added and gotten rid of two former Knicks. And this offseason? Yeah, this past offseason. There is an obvious answer whenever it comes to former Knicks, but I feel like that's not the answer. What are you thinking? The obvious answer in terms of the team that always seems to sign our Knicks is Dallas. Yeah, it's not Dallas, but it is a good guess. There is another 
reasonably obvious answer. I'm trying to think about who the Pistons let go because they mm. signed Knox. Oh, did they did they drop Noel or Campbell? No, he's still there. It's an Eastern team, but it's not so Detroit. It's, it's not Detroit. Wow, those would have been my two guesses. Um, I would never have gotten this because I was not aware of the two Knicks that they had added. I knew who they got rid of, but I didn't know they had signed either guy. Um, it's not Atlanta. It's not Charlotte. Miami didn't really have X Knicks. Boston doesn't really have next X Knicks. Yeah, Gallo. Um, oh, they added Gallo. That's right. They have, yeah, they it's have Boston. Been, it's not Boston. It is Atlanta. Okay, so Atlanta. They added Dejounte Murray. Dejounte Murray. That doesn't count. Um, they lo- they got rid of Kevin Knox. That's right. Mm-hmm. They got rid of Knox. Um, did they sign Reggie Bullock or something? They signed Justin Holiday. Oh. And they brought in Mo Harkless. How could you be Mo Harkless? <laughs> they lost. Uh, they lost Knox, and they lost. Uh, what was the other one? Lost quotation marks. Sorry. <laughs> they Sorry. misplaced Knox and they traded Gallo to the Celtics. So the Atlanta Hawks are the Dallas Mavericks of the Eastern Conference. Um, Interesting. Moving off of trivia. I will say, Justin Holiday, I was pissed that they didn't bring him back. I've always liked him. I always thought he was good. I always thought, like, just a useful guy to have around. There's always like, a role for him. They kept Baker over him, which, like, no offense to Ron Baker, but, like, his biggest strength was that he wouldn't fuck anything up. Yes. You know? Yes. But like the 6'6", six, 6'7", six, six, wing who can knock down an open three has been like the, the thing that the Knicks have needed more of forever. It's like it's like getting rid of a... I know you're not a big football fan. It's like getting rid of like a, a rotation cornerback in football. Like why would you do that if it's cheap? You know, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. you always need those guys. The Knicks do not have... It's a short history, but it's not a great history with... Players with the last name of Baker. Um, ben Baker was short-lived and did not really turn out well. And Ron Baker... All you have to know about Ron Baker is that there was a brief low period in Nick history where Ron Baker was the subject of way too many debates between Nick fans. Like, way too many debates um, for a guy of his stature. Yeah, I mean... I'm sure a lot of tennis fans would say the same thing about Anna Kornikova. So there is a common denominator there. I'm They're liking really Ron, attractive. But... I'm not sure anyone has connected Ron Baker to Anna Kornikova before, but you heard it first on the Believe Nick's pod. You may have well, heard I mean, it I, last. I think, I think it's kind of like I also Ron Baker did some funny interviews, like when he was at Wichita State, probably still underage or flirting with it. <laughs> like he would just like meet moms on the road, like 45 year old moms who were just like hitting on him and shit. <laughs> Um, so yeah, Ron Baker, probably the hottest Nick in, in recent history. Did he play with, he played with someone good, didn't he, in college? Red Fleet, friend Red Fleet, he played on this. That's it, thank you, okay, okay. And I think Clean Anthony Early was there too. Clean Tony, there's a name that brings me back. Not Nikola um, Jokic, if you ask certain segments of the Knicks fan base <laughs> that loves They're still waiting for that Spurs model to pay off. Um, <laughs> speaking of waiting on people... There's been a lot of talk about new Knicks, Jalen Brunson, of course. Um, there's been talk about prospective Knicks, like Donovan Mitchell. 
Um, but one really probably as significant to the Knicks' fortunes this next season as anyone else who really hasn't been, I feel, spoken about much, um, maybe because there's been so much talk about in the last two years or so, three years, is Julius Randle. Um, Randle has had as pretty much striking a split as you could the last two seasons. Um, two years ago, All-NBA second team. He's getting well-earned MVP chance. And last year, I mean, by... I don't know, Christmas, Valentine's Day, certainly. People are ready to run them out of town. Um, the consensus, I find, seems to be that people think last year was the true Randall, and that's what you're going to get, and the Knicks need to get rid of him ASAP. Um, I know where I fall on this question, but how do you feel about Julius Randall on a team with a better point guard, um, a team that hopefully just has a better vibe and storyline around it than the team last year what do you think is possible or probable from randall going forward or do you feel like what's done is done and he's just sooner than later he's got to go yeah i um i'll say this i don't think it for me it wasn't christmas um for most of the early parts of the season the team struggled randall's shooting was an issue but i wasn't out on him um i don't think i'm the only one even among some of the more avowed nick's uh, Randall needs to be gone. Crowd, um, I so as some of you may know, I also host Pod Strickland with Schwinnie Poo. Um, obviously, great follow. You should follow him. But I found a tweet by like happenstance from another related thing from like early February, where he's saying that like Randall's just being deployed poorly. And I remember that because I don't think I think for most of the season. Until really late February, and something did change in late February. This is not, I'm not saying Schwinn was wrong. What I'm saying is things changed palpably. And there's a reason why um, him and, and me as well have kind of turned on Randall after that point. Um, but for the most part, for most of the year, I thought that Tibbs slowing the team down, force feeding Randall was a bigger issue than Randall himself. Um, I think after February, the the effort dropped, the willingness to lean into bad root, the um, offensive choices dropped, got worse, all of those things. But before February, there was a two-month stretch where he played really fast. His efficiency went up. He did the things you want, right? Um, and I'll talk about what those things are from Randall. But, um, but just the first thing I'll say is I don't think it was as early as December for me. Um, I think it, by that time, I was still saying Kemba's an issue. Mm-hmm. Um you know they had they had we went through COVID and injuries. I thought I mean I did not hate Fournier at any point. He did have a shooting slump, but uh, with Fournier, I think the bigger issue was like you can play Fournier and hide him on defense if you have good defenders next to him. You probably play Kemba and hide him on defense if you have good defenders next to him. Tibbs insisted on playing them together, um, which if he hates quickly, fine. You had Alec Burks on the bench who would have been better next to Kemba. Um, you had Grimes, who probably would have been better next to Kemba. Again, not replacing all of Evan Fournier's minutes, but making sure that you don't have two awful defenders in the backcourt, which is, it's going to, this is why I hope if he's learned his lesson, he's not going to start Fournier next to Brunson, even if he wants to give him 20 minutes a game. To answer your question, so I, I wrote this on the Strickland Discord. So here's, 
here is how I think Randall can be successful. Do I think the Knicks should try to move on with a good trade? Yes. He costs $26 million a year. His backup is very effective. Um, and when Randall is here, he doesn't get more than 18 minutes a game. So, and he doesn't cost nearly as much. So yes, I would, if I had to choose between Obi and Randall, which it seems like at some point they have to make that choice. I'm choosing Obi. Do you disagree with that, by the way? Yeah, what? If we have to choose between Obi and Randall, who are you choosing? <laughs> you know, it's funny because the age difference is not as big as you might think it is um, between them, but but there's another number that's a lot. There's and, another number that's very different. I will. I don't know. This isn't meant to be a cop out, but I feel like my answer depends on where the roster is going to go next. So, for example, if the Knicks were going to trade for Donovan Mitchell, I would rather have Obi going forward because I think. What I imagine Mitchell and Brunson and Obi um, and some of the other young players, I think the Knicks would be a good team that get out in space when they can and run whenever they can and try to be aggressive. If the Knicks don't get Donovan Mitchell, I'm not in, I'm not as down on Randall as everybody. I think as the years go on, his contract, which I don't think is bad to begin with, becomes less and less of a hindrance because as the cap rises – his contract really is not that bad at all. Um, and I feel like if I don't have... But what is the case for him over Obi at that point? I think for me the case over him over Obi is that I, I've seen Randall perform on a pretty good team at a level where he can be like an offensive hub. Not a hub that you can ride all the way to the conference finals. Maybe not even a hub you can get deep in the playoffs with. But I know... I've seen Randall go for 25, 10, and 6 over a full season. I know he can do that. I loved what I saw from Obi last year. Um, it's highly possible that that was Obi's breakout song and that that's who he is. But it's also possible that four or five games at the end of the season, mostly, I think, against teams with nothing going for them, maybe is not enough evidence for me to say, I'm going to whatever you think of Randall, whatever you think of the contract, I still think like other than maybe Brunson, if you were drafting, if the league held a draft tomorrow, a league wide draft and everybody could just draft players for talent and to build around, I would think Randall would be one of the first two Knicks to go. If not number one, um, I'm not totally strong and convicted in this field. Like I'm not positive that, I should get rid of Obi, but I'm trying not to fall into too much excitement and hype over a very small sample compared to a guy who I know his, I feel like this is what happens a lot with the draft. Like Randall's been around long enough and has certainly struggled enough that I know what his flaws are. Obi's had much less of a, of a chance to be seen and to do things, which is Thibodeau's fault, not Obi's, but, um, I saw someone tweeting recently about um, back in the day when Cleveland had uh, Mark Price and Kevin Johnson, and I don't and and how like you know Price was so good that with whatever KJ had going on, you know they were comfortable moving, moving on because they knew what they had, even if they didn't know what they had in KJ. I'm not saying that Randall is at Price's level, but I haven't seen enough from Obi to know like get rid of this All NBA second player who is a multidimensional contributor on offense because 
OB averaged 27 for a week. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's just OB averaging 27 for a week. Um, but I think part of it, I think it's important to bring up the fact that um, Randall was the number one. Like, he functioned as the hub. Yeah. But you said he can't function as the hub. Even that version of Randall can't function as a hub on a good team. I don't think he's ever going to shoot like that again. Yeah, um, probably not. To put it bluntly. And if he doesn't, and even that, he finished at 57 true shooting. Yeah. Um, and that's something like if he's going to be the hub, getting Jalen Brunson doesn't even move the needle that much compared to that. I mean, he's better than Elf was. But, I mean, Randall got to play with Reggie. And, and um, you know, it's, it remains to be seen how much playing with Brunson would actually help Randall if he's going to be a hub. But if, if Randall's best attribute is he can be a hub, but you don't ideally want him being a hub, to me, I don't know if that goes out the window, but then I'm like, all right, so who looks good as a second option? And so I do think Randall can look good as a second option. Personally, I don't think there's at least there's a bit of big of a difference because I uh, between them to to say that because I, I I think the sample size argument is valid, but it's also worth noting that the things that Obi does in his small samples can't really like he runs his ass off. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not saying that this is just someone who tries hard. I'm saying that there have been many instances where you watch him run the floor. Either he gets an alley-oop or he draws two defenders and then Evan Fournier IQ walks in at open three. Mm-hmm. Um, in the half court, he rarely holds the ball for more than a second. Mm-hmm. It's either a quick pass or a fake, and then he goes to the hole and he's very effective. That is the opposite of Randall, um, who really has some of those tendencies. However, um, this is not just the Obi versus Randall podcast, but I think based on that cost, I think Obi's shown enough that he deserves a chance to be a starter. I think Randall has shown that you don't want him to be a hub on a good team. So then the question is, is he worth $26 million when you have a capable backup? To me, the answer is no. However, if they keep Randall, I think he can be very effective if he does certain things. So this is kind of my recipe for Julius Randall to be not 2010 and five, maybe, but like, 19 and 9 on good efficiency. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the number one thing he should be focused on is attacking closeouts from the wing, either with catch and shoot threes or a drive. I know a lot of old school folks who are like, he's a big, strong dude, get him in the paint, are going to say this. But realistically, he hasn't been getting those. You play with another center, um, either Mitchell Robinson or Isaiah Hartenstein, so it's going to be tough for you to really have space in there. And uh, we can't play Randall without one of them because he's not a good enough defender. So his best role right now is to either take catch and shoot threes off of off of someone like Brunson driving and kicking, or if someone closes out hard, then you get the ball downhill. You have a man advantage, and that's where Randall's really good. Yep. Where he's not trying to shake and bake. He's in a straight line. He's using his strength, speed, and finishing ability. Mm-hmm. That's his number one thing. The other thing that they didn't try a whole lot last year, they tried him a lot at the elbow posting up from 10 to 16 feet on the baseline. He's much better, in my opinion. Which he did a lot two years ago and was quite successful with. Right. It did not work against Atlanta because right. they have Clint Capella and a very sophisticated defensive scheme. And I wonder if that influenced them not going to that as much. But he's very good. He's better towards the baseline because when he gets the ball in the middle, we saw this early in the year in Chicago. Um, he got the, like, in the fourth quarter, one of the sets the Knicks ran a lot was – They'd run, basically, I'll call it a nominal pick and roll with the point guard and Randall. But it's really, it's just to give up the switch. It's just to get the switch and then get Randall a post up at the elbow. Right. The point guard is not threatening anything. 
And that didn't mean matter if it was Kemba or Burks. Later in the IQ in the year, IQ started to break off from that a little bit, and so did Burks. But for the most part, like it was telegraphed. We just want Randall to get a touch at twenty five feet at the or twenty two feet at the elbow. Okay, so Randall will get it against Chicago. They were able to stick Lonzo Ball on him. I think the Knicks won this game. This is one of the earlier games in the year, yeah. and Lonzo one is a terrific defender. I'm not sure uh, understating that. But he knew a few things. One, he knew that he had help to the middle. He knew Randall didn't want to go middle. Um, so he knew Randall's main options were going left or taking a jump shot. So we got into him. And he, he wouldn't let him. And like Randall had the ball on his right side of the body. So his, with Lonzo's hands, he's like, you're not going to be able to cross to your left. Yeah. Um, and that's just one example of how like Randall in the middle of the floor is not great. With a baseline you have fewer options because if you want to send a double at him, like if he's in the middle of the floor, you can send a double from multiple places. Um, he's got to read a lot more. But if he's on the baseline, you can really only send your center and like leave the dunker spot open. And then his read is very simple. Either they help on the dunker spot, which means the corner three is open. They have someone sink down to the dunker spot, which is pretty hard to do, but maybe a possibility. Then you're, you're other, you're, um, you know, as Wally Zerbag would call it, your witch's nipple three is open. <laughs> um, you haven't heard about this? No, I have not. The first broadcast Wally Zerbag ever did. <laughs> I think Steve Novak went off. He had a big game. Yeah. And so Wally Zerbiak mentioned he's just shooting from the witch's nipple, and everyone's like, what the fuck? And he's like, no, no, no. The witch's nipple is where, like, the straight part from the corner three meets the arc. And, like, that little mm. the meeting point that is the witch's nipple. Okay, Wally. Um, but he's so I think he's much better attacking from the baseline. And like and again, the key thing there also is ten to sixteen feet. When he's ten to sixteen feet, I still firmly believe there's a really good mid range shooter out there. Like a twenty foot jump shot, I just don't think needs to happen. Yeah. Um, I think he's a good role man. I think he needs to set better screens and work on that, but he's shown he's capable of it. It's not like he doesn't know how to. Um, I think running the floor, getting early shot clock deep seals in the post um and then one thing which he won't get to do as much of but attacking slow bigs off the dribble so like i don't want randall like he gets into problems a lot where like he'll pump like he catches the ball at the three-point line he'll pump fake do some tweens try to cross over his dude do a spin move like he has that skill and it's cool that he's like that big and can do some guard stuff but like dude you're not jamal crawford all right, you yeah, don't. Yeah. You want. We want you getting downhill. It's like in football, you have one cut runners and you have juke guys. Most yeah. running backs are one cut runners um, because you like Derrick Henry is two forty pounds and really fast. Like you don't want him dancing around. Guy, you don't want him to be Barry Sanders, and you don't want Julius Randall to be Jamal Crawford. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is just I think Randall can be very effective going coast to coast in transition. Um, because you know he's shown that ability, um, but he needs to pick his spots better. But if I list those things, right, I don't know that there's a whole lot of these things that Obi isn't that good at. Um, attack closeouts from the wing, either with catch and shoot three or a drive. I think at this point, Obi, especially given what he shot at the end of the year and his free throw percentage and um, his form, I don't think he's really a worse catch and shoot three point shooter than Randall. We're not significantly worse. And I think he's good at attacking closeouts. Um, but you can give Randall a point there. Baseline post-up, Randall can do that, and Obi can't. Roll man, I think Obi's better. 
early shot clock deep seals. In theory, Randall's better, but Obi is so much better at running the floor that he's able to create those more often, even though Randall is a little bit stronger, I think. Attacking slow bigs off the dribble, I'll give Mitch, I'll give Obi, uh, Randall the advantage there. Uh, and then transition, I think they're both pretty much equal. So uh, you can see a couple of the areas where Randall has advantages, but Obi's really good at those things too. And I didn't mention that for many of these things, like for Randall, you're mostly looking him at him to be a scorer and not make too many reads because he's not that good at, at passing. He's not, a, he's not great at the decision-making. Obi is. Like, Obi is a terrific... Like, Schwinn talked about this in our pod. Like, how many times can you remember Obi making the... And maybe this is a sample size thing, size thing right? But he's a young player. He barely makes the wrong decision on offense. No, and I'd say that was one of the first things that struck me, even his rookie season, when he wasn't getting a ton of minutes. And Obi's, at that point, is particularly his ability to make certain passes um, out of the post or just recognizing, like, the move ahead of the move was the first thing I know ahead of his dunking ahead of anything else that was struck early on by this guy. And ahead of his dunking is important because like most people, like there are people I've, I've seen on Twitter who are like, well, you're overrating Obi cause he just gets dunks, but Randall is the better all around player. I was like, hold on. You're overrating Randall because he can do ISO better than Obi. Fine. But there's more to the game than that. And yeah, to your point, I don't think Obi's best quality is his dunks. I think Obi's best quality is his intelligence. Um, and it, this is, kind of a dangerous area to get into when you talk about basketball players because I definitely don't want to belittle anyone else's but like just the way Obi processes the game is fascinating to me. It's striking. Smart player. Yeah, it's striking. Definitely. Definitely. Um, do you think that the presence of presumably at least two on-ball creators alongside Randall and Brunson and Barrett now in year four can help lessen the load and simplify things enough for Randall that it's realistic to expect to bounce back? Like, do you think some of what happened last year, obviously it wasn't one thing, but I'm always struck that like Randall, since he's been a Nick has had like Alfred Payton, uh, Kemba Walker. And I think probably Alec Burks as his three, I would guess in terms of minutes, those are probably one, two, three that he's played with at the point. Uh, Kemba couldn't penetrate last year. I don't know. I feel like maybe with Brunson and, and more advanced stuff from Barrett, maybe lessening the load on Randall a bit can bring us closer to his ceiling than his floor. Yeah. So there's one thing I want to mention. Bear with me a second. Yeah. We had Solomon Hill at some point. I forgot about that. Yeah. I think only as a, he was one of those like transactional Knicks. Yeah, he shows up when you do a, an on-off query, which maybe this gives you a hint about where I'm going with this. So mm -hmm. there is a player on the Knicks. If you combine the stats from 2020 and 2021, there is a player on the Knicks um, who, when Julius Randle played without him in 3,800 minutes, those lineups had a negative 2.65 rating. When this player played without Julius Randle, those lineups in 700, 1,700 minutes had a 7.51 rating. When a this plus or a minus? Plus. Okay. And then when this player played with Julius Randle, the Knicks had a 6.14 rating in 1,318 minutes. So when this point guard, and he is a point guard, played with Julius Randle over the last two years, the Knicks have outscored teams by over six points per 100 possessions. Mm -hmm. Can you guess who this player is? 
Uh, I'm going to guess that it's not Ron Baker. I'm going to guess <laughs> that it is, in fact, Emmanuel Quickly. Yes. Um, and I'm not saying that you're doing this, but I'm very tired of the excuse for both Tibbs and Randall that he didn't have a point guard. I think Brunson's an amazing player. I'm happy they signed him. I just need people to stop telling me that um, there wasn't a better option of point guard for two years. Uh, I think that's. I think it's disrespectful to Quickly at this point. Um, because of the Knicks' top 25 three-man lineups, he was in 23 of them. He had wow. a plus 13 net rating in a massive sample last year. Um, and half of that, he was like, that's the thing. People are like, well, he shot like shit from December to February. And they were still better with him, right? Mm-hmm. So you can't, you can't have it both ways. You can't say, well, he's a good shooter, but he's not a true point guard. Okay, well, when he wasn't shooting well, what was it, what, why were the team winning? Coincidence? Yep. They're yep. winning because that's when Rose got hurt too. Um, so I, I think that um, I, I have to mention that. I think that's an egregious error by Tibbs. And I think uh, Quickly really was there for Randall and, and helped him. And to the extent that he didn't, I think uh, so I'll, get, I'll come to that now. So how much could, Rand, uh, could Brunson and or Mitchell help? I do think in fourth quarters, when Quickly played with Randall, he tended to defer a lot. I don't know if that's a Tibbs directive. Um, I have seen where Quickly's biggest strength probably as a point guard is his ability to push the pace. If you watch the end of last season, especially when he got time with OB, like his ability to throw outlet passes, like get the ball down the floor quickly was probably the best on the team. Um, and that worked with Randall as well because Randall also likes to play fast when he's not tired. But in the fourth, where there was a Tibbs directive, and I've seen Tibbs from the sidelines slow quickly down where he wanted to push. So I think it somewhat is. But in the fourth, we noticed the possessions got slower. And we noticed that they would mostly try that one pick and roll set, which wasn't really a roll. It was just designed to try to get Randall Opost up at the elbow, which most teams were happy to give up because he wasn't very efficient on them. Um, I do have hope that a, a different point guard with a more cachet like Brunson would be able to tell Randall to fuck off and be like, if we're getting the switch, you're not posting up. I'm attacking the big. Yeah. Uh, and also maybe tell Tibbs to fuck off if Tibbs is like, no, I want to post up at the elbow. Would Tibbs be willing to tr- to trust that person more? I, I believe that. Um, but I also like don't – it bugs me to say that because I think we had a very quality option that was underutilized. And I just think the rhetoric around Emmanuel quickly still sucks. So. Mm-hmm. But I think, yeah, like to answer your question – Will and does that help Randall? Yes, because I think if somebody else is willing to rein him in, if he realizes that I'm not just going to get fed touches in the post because we have no one else, I have to work for my my scoring opportunities. I do think that'll help. Yeah, and I think an un, an unspoken or underrated perk to the Knicks getting Brunson is that they didn't just sign a player with certain skills or certain statistical accomplishments, but you're bringing in a person who has spent the last few years of his career growing alongside like a legitimate ball dominant star. He knows the difference between like Luca and Randall. And I think that's a, I think that's something that the Knicks haven't had. I can't, I, I have a feeling like there hasn't been a point guard on the Knicks since Randall has been there that he would ever defer to. Not necessarily because he's a jerk, just because honestly, if I'm Julius Randle and Frank Nalakina is trying to tell me what to do, I might not listen. Um, but if Jalen Brunson is trying to tell me what to do, I'm probably going to listen. And I think the the guys I've seen him defer to, 
he has deferred to RJ. He yes, has last year deferred... especially. Yeah. Uh, well, I thought it happened more the first year. Was One of the, the things I loved about Randall, like the Knicks love this play where like a guard tries to get in, doesn't have a good angle, throws it out to the big, like pops out, and the big gives him a better ISO yes. angle. Mm-hmm. Randall loved doing that, and he would you could see him like vociferously like encouraging RJ. I've seen him do that with quickly too at times. Yeah. Um but um but yeah, like obviously it's gonna be another level with a guy like Brunson. So let me ask you this obligatory Donovan Mitchell question. As of today, right now, are you expecting when the Knicks open next season they will have Donovan Mitchell or no? Open next season is a tough qualifier. If mm. you said December fifteenth, I'd probably say yes. Mm. Um I'm gonna go with yes though. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Couple more things to talk about. Um, first, as long as we're talking New York hoops, the New York Liberty, um, who we have not talked about yet this season, but the Liberty, um, thanks to a bit of a winning streak here at the end of their season, near the end of their season, um, three game winning streak, while Phoenix and the LA Sparks have both dropped three and five in a row, have put the Liberty now in the seventh spot in the WNBA standings. The top eight make the playoffs, they are tied. For eighth with the Atlanta Dream. They're half a game up on Phoenix, a game up on the Sparks, game and a half on the Minnesota Lynx. Um, there is not a basketball player in New York, and even if Donovan Mitchell, I don't know if Donovan Mitchell would even do it for me. Sabrina Ionescu is the most exciting player I've seen in New York in a long time. Um, she's incredible. The Liberty, I think, are... You know, they made the playoffs last season and had a very kind of heartbreaking um, loss, I believe, to Phoenix in the playoffs where they were they were they competed really until the end against a team that I don't think anyone thought they would. Um, a lot of youth on the Liberty, um, but they're coming along especially strong now. Yanescu's had some amazing performances late in the season. Um, what do you what do you think of the Liberty? What do you make of them? Yeah, I mean, Yanescu's incredible. Uh, I saw them a little bit earlier this season. And she went through, I don't want to say a rough patch, but um, a little bit more up and down. She's been a model of consistency, and she's... Um, it's an emergency. She's 24 years old, doing all of this. Um, so I don't... Um, so, so what? What I, I mean, I think that's fantastic and, and spectacular for a player of a caliber, for for age to be performing like that. Um, I will say this: um, she is clearly the, the Liberty's best player and a transformational player. Um, I don't think she's my favorite player. So okay. I'll ask you this: given and like, I will also be. I have, um, I haven't watched the WNBA as closely in the past, particularly when the Liberty weren't good. I have followed a bit more this season, but it's been a little bit of a reintroduction to me this mm-hmm. season. Given what you know about some of my favorite players on the Knicks, who do you think is my favorite player on the Liberty? Benajah Laney. Nope. Or Dee Dee Richards? Who's my favorite player on the Knicks? Quickly. Who is the player most like quickly on the Liberty? Maybe I'm the only person that draws this parallel. That's fine. But you got Samuel a shooting Eichel? guard who's a gunner, 
who makes crazy passes at times. Uh, just a gamer. Rebecca Allen? Nah, it's Marine Johannes. She is probably my favorite player on the Liberty right now. Okay, okay. Um, she's just so creative with her passing. Young player. Just like she takes crazy shots, but it's not even selfishness because she's also a good passer. She just like she just just aus, just aus, does aus, audacious shit. Yeah. And I love when uh, I, I mean I think I love that backcourt. That is mm-hmm. kind of like we haven't had a backcourt like that in New York, like you said. Mm-hmm. Period. Uh, mm-hmm. Knicks, Liberty, anyone. So, mm-hmm. um, she's like really fun for me to watch. I also like Han a lot. Yeah, um, Han's been fun to watch this year. Um, especially as her confidence has grown, like yes, you can see she, it. Like I went to a game uh, like a month or two ago, and she would shoot the jumper, but you could tell she didn't just she didn't really feel it. But then mm-hmm. she had like that one ten for ten game, mm-hmm. and I just feel like their confidence and everything she's doing is just so much more. And I mean, she's she's really tough to guard, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a completely random connection, um, but I'm just going to throw it in there because otherwise it'll just die in my memory. Um, I was watching a one of Seth Rosenthal's like beef videos, and it was about um, Greg Oden. Sorry, it wasn't a beef video. It was about Greg Oden and like, you know, is it fair to call him like a bust or not? Because he didn't fail on the court; he just was never really on the court. Um, and I had forgotten that Odin with Portland made the playoffs one year against the Rockets when they had Yao Ming. And I remembered, and I looked this up on Basketball Reference just to double check, and I remembered correctly. Did you remember um, when Yao Ming was a rookie? He had about uh, a two or three week stretch where he shot like ninety percent from the field, and he wasn't taking like five shots a game. Like there was some unbelievable. It included a nine for nine. I just thought of it when you said about Hans ten for ten because he had a nine for nine against the Lakers um, in that stretch. And and I, and I only remember it because my best friend at the time was this huge Laker fan, and the Knicks sucked, so I had nothing to talk shit about. So I got on the Yao bandwagon like very quickly because I wanted something to, but I didn't know if Yao would be any good or not. And I remember telling my friend like, "Do you realize this guy has shot like he he ended up going like thirty two of thirty five over like I don't know a week and a half or something." Um, I forgot sometimes how good Yao Ming was. I know he got a lot of votes just for being Yao Ming. Um, and he's obviously was shortened by the injuries. That first game against Shaq. Loved it. Oh, my God. I, I was right. Shaq for... said things that didn't age well, but I don't think even at the time. But, he, I mean, it was just Shaq being a fucking idiot. Yep. Uh, not to minimize. Obviously, people shouldn't say shit like that. But, yeah, he made fun of Yao Ming for being Chinese. He did. And like he just got packed up. And he like you did. could tell it like times like Shaq, even like you could tell Yao was in his head because yep. there was one where like he really pinned Yao under the rim. And I was like, yeah. oh, this is a dunk. And then he went up for a soft layup and he got blocked. And I was like, oh, he's in Shaq's. Like, I think the only two players I can say that I've ever seen in Shaq's head are Yao Ming. And even this, I don't think this really happened to a large extent, but this was the only player I really thought caused Shaq problems was Hakeem Olajuwon. Um, so maybe getting in his head was overstating it. But uh, I, yeah. I will say that very, very briefly, um, and he's kind of talked about this in retirement, he really loved Ewing and Georgetown yeah. coming up. And if you and 
the first time the Knicks played. I think Ewing influenced them a lot for sure. Yeah, the first time the Knicks played Orlando with Shaq there, it was I remember it very clearly. It was a game in New York. Oddly, Charles Smith was the player of the game that game. But yeah. the first time Shaq got the ball, he tried to go at Ewing, right at Ewing. Ewing stuffed him. Um, the first time Ewing tried to go at Shaq, Shaq stuffed him. Um, I lived for and loved big man, like big man matchups. Like back in the day, Shaq versus anybody, you know, Yao versus Shaq, Dwight Howard against Yao when Dwight Howard came in. Um, I lived, I loved those big man matchups. They were crazy. They were so cool. Unrelated, yeah. unrelated. But speaking still of New York and speaking of Patrick Ewing and things back in the day, uh, this is my last note for the day. Spike Lee, um, you may have heard of him as a Nick fan and a movie maker, um, is producing, I guess, a cinematic version or a documentary version of Chris Herring's um, book, Blood in the Garden, about the Knicks of the 1990s. I love Spike as a filmmaker. I don't trust him as a Knicks fan. Are you excited by this news about Spike taking on Herring's project or no big deal? Yeah, I don't think he's, I don't think he's, he's just annoying. Like the celebrity of Nick fans, except for a few are annoying. Mm-hmm. Like you either die a Ben Stiller or a Lloyd Banks as a Knicks fan, <laughs> or you live long enough to see yourself become Spike. By the way, Lloyd Banks actually did do a pretty cool interview with Jalen and Jacoby. Yeah, I saw that. So that um, there was a little bit of the well, it's miserable, and I hope my kid isn't as miserable. Lloyd Banks is a cool fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, shout out Lloyd Banks if you happen to be listening to it. I would personally love to have you on this pod. Uh, I was a huge G Unit fan in high school. Uh, Hunger for More was one of the first hip hop albums I bought. Uh, but it's, he's been a fun Knicks fan. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I've him. In terms of, yeah, like I think, I mean, it's a great. Like Chris Herring was one of the first writers that made me fall in love with sport writing, sports writing. I will say, if there was one writer that really got me into a lot of this, like I don't think he's the same writer. I think there's a lot of problematic aspects to him. Um, but I read, I used to read Bill Simmons on page two a lot. Yep. Uh, I loved Grantland. I loved the, the book of basketball. is still one of my favorite basketball books. Not even because I agree with everything in it, just like. Just the project and the ambition and the discussions mm-hmm. there are cool. Mm-hmm. Chris Herring was up there. He was the first beat reporter I really remember liking about the Knicks. Mm-hmm. Um, to that matter, around the same time period, I also liked Howard Beck, and then he kind of took another turn. Um, but I remember Herring and Beck were the two guys I really liked, and he's just he's very fair. He's I think Herring is very fair while still being real. Yeah, he's gonna give his opinions, but it just sounds very authentic. Uh, and he's not a Knicks fan, so sometimes I don't agree with them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought he did a very... I mean, I i think it's... Like, Blood in the Garden is extremely well-written. That's great. Um, there's there's so many things I didn't know. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm old enough to have watched these players, but I was also 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old at that time. So I yeah. wasn't... And we didn't have the internet, so I wasn't really this knowledgeable about them. Mm-hmm. Um, learning about... I think just learning about Anthony Mason, the full person, right? Such a great part of that book. Um, Starks and everything, how like his past really connected to the game six, right? Um, and uh, and even a guy like Charles Smith, who to me sounds like, I don't know, maybe he is the, I don't, Julius Randle is probably the wrong comparison, but like, it also feels like, you know, it just, 
these are people and you know sometimes their roles aren't the same and mm-hmm. um and even even Riley I mean you learn a lot about Riley uh, yes you I do have, yes you do I have met Pat Riley in person have you yeah uh he is a very very friendly person hmm. um and there's like so many interviews of him I've seen too where he just comes across as like a good guy yeah. and then they're like there's this other part of him that's just extremely yeah. ruthless mm-hmm. um i mean i don't like there's parts of me that admire pat riley that's part of parts of me that just are disgusted by him yes i don't think he did right by dave checkets who i i mean the book at least from the book i think dave checkets was better to pat riley than vice versa mm-hmm. um but you know uh, it's a fascinating book i would be very like i think they're gonna make this a documentary yeah. Otherwise, I'd be curious because they're doing winning time now. I and I think Adrian Brody has been really good as Pat Riley. <laughs> I'd be curious if they brought him back to like as a spinoff of winning time. Right. So, yeah. What about you? What do you, what were your thoughts on it? Um, given how interesting and compelling, despite problems I had with it on other levels, the last dance was, I would assume that Spike doing a Nick centric um, series on Herring's incredible book, can't help but go well. I mean, for whatever you think of Spike and other things, he's one of my favorite filmmakers. Like when you watch something Spike has done, movie? that was going to be my last question. Um, so I'm going to give you my, I'll give you my top one, two, three, four, five, in order from five to one. Um, can, sorry, Matt. Can you pause it for a second? Yes, I can. Everybody, wait. We're going to build up to the excitement. Right. I'll, I'll give mine too. I get a couple minutes. So, Spike Lee movies that I have really enjoyed. Um, I never saw the original Old Boy. I saw Spike Lee's Old Boy. Um, I, if you haven't seen Old Boy, I'm not going to say anything. But it's a pretty shocking movie. Um, so, Old Boy was cool. Bamboozled was good. Um, and Clockers, I really, really enjoyed. But my top two Spike Lee's are always um, the first one I saw, which was Do the Right Thing and Malcolm X, and even though he made some decisions in the storytelling of Malcolm X that I have a lot of problems with. Um, I mean, Denzel was freaking amazing. So. There's Denzel, but it's, it's more character stuff. It's more like, if you've read the, autobiogra- the autobiography yeah. of Malcolm X, like having a character like Baines, like in, in, in Malcolm X's story, he talks about he's in prison, and he sees like a vision of Elijah Muhammad one night, in his cell and he has this transcendent illogical experience that helps bring him um, into the nation of Islam. And I know that story may not always play as well for people. So Spike introduces this character called Baines who like talks to Malcolm in prison and helps him, you know, get off drugs and helps him like leads him into, into Islam. And it's, it's much more conventional, but I felt at the time, especially because Spike was complaining so much about, um, it was originally it was going to be a white director, and Spike said it can't be a white director. And I feel like if any other director had made that same decision that Spike did, there were other also moments from the the biography that he he played up and left out. I think the counter story that that would have put more depth on it later. But it's beautifully shot, it's beautifully told. Um, it's an it's a really interesting, just directed project. In addition to the story being incredible, and do the right thing is. I still don't think I've ever seen anything like Do the Right Thing since it came out almost 40 years ago, my God. Yeah, that would that would be up there as my pick. 
he got game would be up there. It's not my favorite <clears throat> basketball movie, but it's a good movie. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen Inside Man. I have not. Okay, Inside Man is like well done. It's like a heist movie uh, with Clive Owen, Denzel's in it. Too. I wanted to see that. Yeah. Uh, but it's funny because like it starts with a Bollywood song, like that's the opening music and like the opening credits and stuff. Okay. Nothing to do with the movie. It's just a Bollywood song that it's one of the most bo- famous Bollywood fo- songs ever. But like Spike Lee heard it and was like, yo, I want the song in a movie. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I would probably go and do the right thing. But, do the right thing's incredible still. Um, I remember I rented it from some store when I was like 12, 12 or something or 11. And I'm watching it with my best friend, like in the back room of my grandmother's house and we're trying to keep the volume down so like nothing inappropriate is heard um because we had already seen the scene with um rosie perez and the ice cube we were like all we were really like trying to not get this movie taken away from us and right as my aunt and uncle show up and walk in the back room it's that scene where like four characters in a row just spit off like a litany of racial and ethnic slurs like it's some other group it's it's about two minutes in the film but it's literally like 30 seconds of anti-white slurs, anti-black slurs, anti-Korean slurs, anti-Latino slurs. And it was just like the worst moment in my very like proper religious family to have somebody like walking in the door. That's just two minutes in a row of like profanity and insults. So, uh, but you know, it's a good movie because they sat down and we were like, oh shit. And they stayed with it for the rest of the movie. So props to you, Spike. Um, Props to Spike. Props to Ray Rahim. Props to Public Enemy. Props to everyone involved in that great project. Um, that's all the time I have for today. Hopefully it's all the time Stacy has too. Um, so that's it for episode 40. We will be back with you today's Friday. Next week, um, we'll have our next episode. I'm sure there will be something new to talk about. So we'll be on it. For Stacy Patton, Matthew Miranda, everybody take care. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.